Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the political class remains centered on the impeachment inquiry, members of the Black Congressional Caucus lead a tribute to honor Representative John Conyers, the longest-serving African-American in congressional history who led the fight for universal health care against South African apartheid for the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and reparations for African-Americans. He was a person whose thumbprint will remain throughout history as a political voice, a leader, and a beloved man in a history of our city and of Metro Detroit. And as millions around the world protest in the streets against vast wealth inequality, activists gather in Cuba in opposition to U.S. imperialism. The United States has got its hands everywhere in the world, trying to control industries, trying to control resources, to, you know, so as to increase profits. And that's something that we can directly affect as people living with inside uh, what they call the belly of the beast. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. After weeks of mass protests throughout Iraq, a number of rockets struck near the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad's Green Zone this week, killing at least one Iraqi soldier. Journalists said that at least two rockets were fired that landed in the zone that has housed government and diplomatic offices since the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. Wednesday's bombing occurred after two rockets fell earlier this week on a camp north of Baghdad where U.S. soldiers are stationed. More than 100 Iraqi protesters have been killed and thousands more injured by sniper fire in the nationwide uprising that began for necessities like clean water and electricity and for improved job prospects for young people. Just as in Iraq, there are protests by millions around the world against vast wealth inequality lack of basic services, and government corruption. These actions are occurring as hundreds of people are gathering through Sunday, November 3rd in Havana, Cuba, for the anti-imperialist meeting of solidarity for democracy and against neoliberalism. On the Ground is reporting from the conference and caught up with conference participants en route from the United States. My name is Cheryl Labash from Detroit, Michigan. I'm a co-chair of the National Network on Cuba. We're going to Havana to show our solidarity with Cuba at a time when it's under attack. We want to learn from other countries and the, the Cubans themselves how to build a movement that will end the blockade once and for all. This domination of the world through war has to end and we have a special responsibility because we live in the United States to find the ways to unite to end it. My name is Mamut Rari Nahu. So I'm out of California. I organize in the Bay Area, San Jose, and all the way down to LA and Long Beach. And I'm going to Cuba for the conference to show solidarity with the Cuban people and let them know that we are also anti-imperialist. And uh, not only show solidarity with the people of Cuba, also solidarity with the people of the world and get that first-hand knowledge about what's going on in other parts of the world. This is a country that's been fighting against imperialism for a long time on the front lines. This is a liberated zone. So we're going there to learn, teach, come back, and inspire and motivate the masses out here. I'm Miranda 
Bachman. I'm coming from Baltimore, and I'm attending this conference because Cuba is in a very important example of socialism in the world. The revolution was in 1959, and it persists on. The United States is probably the biggest perpetrator of violence and war against Cuba. When we talk about sanctions and the blockade, we're talking about war. And so as somebody living in the United States, I feel a duty to come to Cuba and not only express solidarity, but learn from folks in Cuba, learn from the revolution. My name is Andrew Conkon. I'm from Baltimore. The United States has got its hands everywhere in the world, trying to control industries, trying to control resources, so, you know, so as to increase profits. And that's something that we can directly affect as people living with inside uh, what they call the belly of the beast. You know, I, I think a lot of people jump to sort of legislative and electoral struggle, but that's got to be secondary to a grassroots struggle and a political struggle to, you know, to, to organize workers, to organize people all over the world to say, we won't stand for more war, we won't stand for sending more people to die, we won't stand for people dying by, you know, our hands and by our tax dollars. I mean, I like to put it to people this way. Can you imagine if every time that there was a drone strike on Yemen, every Starbucks in the United States would close? I think people would lose their minds. I think people would say, okay, we can't, we can't keep suffering at the hands of, um, you know, we can't keep suffering because, you know, the United States is you know, assisting Saudi Arabia in bombing Yemen. I think we have a big responsibility to, to shut down the U.S. war machine from within. Several members of the Congressional Black Caucus led a tribute Monday to former Representative John Conyers, Democrat of Michigan, who died on October 27th at the age of 90. He served in the House from 1965 to 2017, the longest-serving African-American in congressional history. We'll have voices from that tribute later in the show. In climate news, as record wildfires rage in California, a coalition of foreign and American car companies is backing the Trump administration in an ongoing lawsuit with California over fuel economy standards. The car group, including General Motors and Toyota North America, supports a call for one national emission standard, while states argue that they have a right to more stringent rules on these climate change inducing emissions under the Clean Air Act. Also, a climate action called Fire Drill Fridays, initiated by actress Jane Fonda, is rallying at the U.S. Capitol every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Fonda, along with actor Ted Danson, were arrested after demonstrating on the East Lawn of the Capitol on October 25th. Fonda told the group that young people are motivating her to take a stand. I'm inspired by Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish on fire because it is. it is and that's why we're calling these fire drill fridays the scientists the scientists tell us we have only 11 years to turn things around it's going to be very very hard let's make no mistake about what we mean turn things around what what has to happen 
We have to stop all new fossil fuel extraction. We have to stop licensing, permitting, financing on public lands and waters, any new fossil fuel development. Now this Father said she would be at the Capitol and risk arrest every Friday through January of next year. In local news, a rally to support rent control and affordable housing drew hundreds in Northwest D.C. Chantal James has more. On Saturday in Mount Pleasant's Lamont Park, D.C. Jobs with Justice and a coalition of nine other organizations converged for a rally with hundreds of supporters. The rally to reclaim rent control is the kickoff for the campaign to reclaim rent control, which calls on the D.C. Council to protect and expand rent control in the district during the upcoming reauthorization of rent control laws. 50,000 rent-controlled units have been lost in D.C. since 1985, with the remaining 80,000 or so in jeopardy if the Council does not act in the interest of working-class residents of the city. Facilitated by moderator Sequinley Gray, tenants and organizers from across the district energized the crowd with their personal appeals for laws that protect affordable housing throughout D.C. Organizer Sandy Kirkland laid out the crisis in Wards 7 and 8. Rent control is imperative throughout the district, especially in Wards 7 and 8, which have the lowest median family incomes in the district. So while our wages may not be going up, we know that the rents are. Control de renta es un imperativo en el distrito, más que todo en las zonas 7 y 8, que tienen uh, los ingresos medianos más bajos en todo el distrito. Y mientras nuestros salarios no están subiendo, las rentas sí. Second to Ward 1, Ward 8 has the largest number of rent-controlled units in the district. We see a lot of developments being built in low-income neighborhoods with no regard for tenants that are current. Uh, después de la zona 1, la zona 8 tiene la, el número más alto de unidades de control de renta en todo el distrito. Veamos muchos nuevos desarrollos en, que los están construyendo en defenderios de bajos recursos, sin pensamiento por los inquilinos actuales. They're not building for us. They're building for the wealthier tenants. No nos están construyendo. Están construyendo para los inquilinos con más dinero, más ricos. We know that this is the story of the District of Columbia. I see this all throughout both Wards 7 and 8, how buildings continue to be knocked down, displacing families and elderly people. Sabemos que ahora es la historia del distrito. Yo lo veo en las zonas 7 y 8, como los edificios continúan de demoler y están desplazando las familias y las personas de mayor edad. I have loved ones and people that I know who were given vouchers once this happened. Tengo queridos familiares que los han dado cupones de vivienda después de que eso pasó. They're told to get out of the district. Go to Clinton, go to Waldorf, get anywhere you can, but get out of the district, go to Maryland, anywhere. And of course, most of these folks are black and brown. Y los dicen que salgan del distrito, que vayan a Maryland, a Clinton, a Waldorf, 
Y como ustedes saben, la mayoría de esas personas son negros y son morenos. These current laws and policies that are written are surely not for us. What they do is incentivize landlords and developers to displace tenants. Las políticas actuales no están escritos para nosotros. Lo que lo hacen es incentivizar a los dueños y desarrolladores a desplazar los inquilinos. What we seek to do with our campaign is to center tenants to be the focal points of these laws, not the landlords. Lo que queremos hacer con nuestra campaña es centrar a los inquilinos, que ellos son el punto focal de los leyes, no los dueños. So let's make sure we give them a good fight and make sure that we keep housing affordable in the district. Entonces vamos a The City Council's hearing on the Rental Housing Extension Amendment Act of 2019 will take place in the Wilson Building on November 13th. If you are interested in offering testimony, contact the Committee on Housing and Neighborhood Revitalization at 202-724-8198. From Northwest DC, this is Chantal James. The 14th birthday of Alicia Rudd, a girl who went missing from a D.C. homeless shelter six years ago, was celebrated this week outside the Wilson Building by a small ad hoc group calling itself Raise Alicia Rudd Reward to $75,000 with no delay. Henderson Long, an advocate for missing children, handed out a flyer with a photo rendering of what Rudd might look like today. She was last seen with the shelter janitor Khalil Tatum. After Rudd went missing, Tatum's wife was found murdered and Tatum's body was found and his death was ruled a suicide. Finally, in culture and media, the National Park Service has scrapped a plan to consider charging fees for demonstrations around the National Mall and the White House. The Park Service said Monday it was withdrawing proposed changes to its First Amendment and special permit use regulations after receiving more than 140,000 comments on the plan. Max Blumenthal, editor of the news site The Gray Zone, which On the Ground has featured, was arrested on the morning of October 25th on a fabricated charge related to this year's siege of the Venezuelan embassy here in Washington, D.C. According to Gray Zone journalist Ben Norton, a team of D.C. police officers appeared at Blumenthal's home just after 9 a.m., demanding entry and threatening to break his door down. A number of officers had taken positions on the side of his home as though they were prepared for a SWAT-style raid. Blumenthal was hauled into a police van and ultimately taken to D.C. Central Jail, where he was held for two days in various cells and cages. Blumenthal was shackled by his hands and ankles for more than five hours in one such cage, along with other inmates. His request for a phone call was denied by D.C. police and corrections officers, effectively denying him access to the outside world, Norton said. Blumenthal was informed that he was accused of a simple assault by a Venezuelan opposition member. He declared the charge completely baseless. Quote, this charge is a 100% false, fabricated, bogus, untrue, and malicious lie, Blumenthal declared. It is clearly part of a campaign of political persecution, designed to silence me and the gray zone for our factual journalism exposing the deceptions, corruption, and violence of the far-right Venezuelan opposition. The arrest warrant was five months old and revived without the defendant's knowledge. 
If, quote, if the government had at least told me I had a warrant, I could have voluntarily surrendered and appeared at my own arraignment. I have nothing to fear because I'm completely innocent of this bogus charge, Blumenthal stated. Instead, the federal government essentially enlisted the D.C. police to SWAT me, ensuring that I would be subjected to an early morning raid and then languish in prison for days without even the ability to call an attorney, end quote. The embattled New York Pacifica radio station WBAI heads back to court on November 6th, seeking to have its local programming restored. After Pacifica's interim director, John Verniel, forcibly shut down the station on October 7th and piped in content from California without authorization from the foundation's full national board. While Pacifica circulated a statement describing WBAI's poor finances As a reason for the controversial shutdown, a clearer picture has emerged that contradicts the assertion that WBAI was a singular drain on the listener-supported network. WBAI general manager told on the ground that large gifts given to WBAI wiped out all of what the station owed the National Office for Payroll and that the remainder was to be paid from the fall fund drive, which was abruptly stopped, halted, by Pacifica's dismantling and closure of the station. According to media analysts, WBAI is the only Pacifica station with rising membership roles and rising Arbitron ratings. And finally, a note on those Nationals World Series champs. This week started with the op-ed, Go Nats, Go Natives, published in the Washington Post by Ronald Moten, co-founder of Check It Enterprises and the social justice organization Don't Mute DC. He wrote, It seems like the entire region is celebrating after the Nationals' historic playoff run. But for many, that good feeling evaporated when we saw the ticket prices. $1,100 for standing room only. Even worse, many season ticket holders did not get to purchase tickets, according to reports. I call this ticketification, the ugly sister of gentrification. What a slap in the face to D.C. taxpayers who subsidized this state-of-the-art facility with more than $600 million. We saw the vision, we invested, we waited patiently, we sacrificed, we were loyal before it was popular. Now we can't afford to be there for the celebration. As a D.C. native, I can relate. Right now, my city is winning financially, but every day it gets harder for us to be there for the party. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn on International News. Stay with us.
do 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 Say that once You It's the end to do 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 It's the end to do 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 It's the end to do 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 It's the end This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And Professor Gerald Horn is joining me now for our international news segment. He is the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than three dozen books. Well, Gerald, this week the Trump administration announced that U.S. military forces had captured and killed the head of ISIS, al-Baghdadi, and doubled down on the U.S. military staying in Syria to apparently steal that country's oil. Uh, Last week, uh, Trump famously said, We've secured the oil and therefore a small number of U.S. troops will remain in the area where they have the oil. And we're going to be protecting it and we'll be deciding what we're going to do with it in the future. And that's what Trump said. And so I'm bringing up this statement in this statement by Trump, you know, this theft being an obvious war crime, an international crime, as a way of pivoting to this hemisphere where crippling sanctions, economic war is still being waged against the people in Venezuela and Cuba, where I will be reporting from this weekend, actually, from the Anti-Imperialist Conference. And these sanctions are also illegal. So when you look at this kind of international gangsterism economic gangsterism is you know what's your take what are you looking at when you see the u.s this week well what i'm looking at is the continuing reaction in washington amongst the democrats to mr trump announcing that he's going to pull u.s forces out of syria not necessarily doing so because as you as you suggested he's already said that he wants to keep a residual force there in order to uh, snatch Syria's oil. But in any case, I see even his announcement that he's going to be withdrawing troops as a sign that Mr. Trump and those around him feel that Washington needs to husband its resources for a confrontation with China. In fact, you might have seen the interview with the billionaire Hungarian-American financier George Soros in the New York Times a few days ago, a supporter of Elizabeth Warren, by the way, who took a more anti-China line than Mr. Trump has in some senses. And so this suggests this bipartisan effort with regard to confronting China. Now, hopefully this attempt to husband resources will have a positive impact on U.S. imperialism's efforts to destabilize progressives in this hemisphere. Already we see that in the Argentine elections that Christina Kirchner uh, made a comeback, this time as vice president. Uh, She's hated uh, by Wall Street because in previous governments, she's actually led a default uh, with regard to certain financial obligations that were incurred during her regime and the regime of her late husband. And we also see that in Chile, as we speak, hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets against the conservative uh, president, um, President uh, Piñera. And we see that in Ecuador, uh, Lenin Moreno, uh, who has sought to reverse the progressive efforts of his predecessor, uh, President Correa, uh, has been forced to evacuate the capital, Quito, and move his act to Guayaquil. 
And we also see that once again, Cuba, where you'll be reporting from, is standing firm. And I take it that you're going to this uh, very important conference that will be unfolding this week in Havana that will be gathering together many progressives, not only from this hemisphere, but from around the world. Right. This is the anti-imperialist conference in Cuba. And, you know, I guess it's really pointing to Cuba's role, continuing role as a leader in the anti-imperialist movement. And that's something that we don't really hear about a lot in this country. And I'll also learn a lot more about the impact, the tremendous impact that these U.S. sanctions are having in Cuba as they are having in Venezuela. So I guess what I was getting to before was whether this is a I know you said a kind of a husbanding of resources, but does that point to U.S. strength or weakness? Well, I think it points to weakness. And in fact, I think that one of the initiatives that's going to be emerging from the progressive movement in coming days, weeks and months is an anti-sanctions campaign targeting U.S. sanctions against Zimbabwe, against Syria, against Cuba. And if I have my way, the initiative will then announce a global campaign for sanctions against the United States of America in order to restrain its more bellicose impulses. And I think that to the extent we can get this campaign off the ground, to that extent, we'll be able to do a service for humanity. Very often we talk about imperialism and it occurs to me sometimes when I'm just putting together the show that, you know, that we need to stop and talk to people about what that is. Uh, we talk about capitalism. We know uh, a lot of people know what capitalism is. But when we talk about imperialism and uh, kind of applying it to, to the world today, what, what is a good way of describing what we're talking about? Well, basically what we're talking about, particularly from where we sit in North America, is U.S. multinational and transnational corporations exporting capital abroad and then getting the Pentagon and U.S. military and central intelligence agency and other sources to protect those investments by any means necessary. Uh, that's the import, for example, of ongoing U.S. efforts to destabilize Venezuela, once again, to steal the oil. As you probably know, there's, there are legal proceedings unfolding as we speak to snatch one of Venezuela's major uh, resources. I'm speaking of Citgo, right. uh, a corporation which you can find on many neighborhoods in this country. Uh, right now, there is an effort to steal that resource from the Venezuelan people. I can think of no more audacious attempt or no more audacious uh, example of imperialism than this ongoing attempt to steal Citgo. Well, Gerald, I look forward to talking to you about Cuba when I return and talking about how people are discussing this really rogue <laughs> reach of the U.S. around the world in terms of the regime change wars, the fomenting of what people call color revolutions around the world, and then really not really supporting the people who are in the streets around the world, not only in South America, but in Europe and in, in, in the Middle East and in Iraq. We haven't talked about that, who are really, really fighting against 
this protesting against and rising up against this neoliberal order, which is this reach of imperialism around the world. Here, here. <laughs> All right. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. I don't want to take no time to write this down. Mr. Speaker, I rise today to pay tribute to Congressman John Conyers. He was one of the 13 founding members of the Congressional Black Caucus. And I stand here today joining the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Karen Bass, and recognizing that he served for 53 years in the U.S. House of Representatives, making him one of the longest-serving House members in history and the first African-American to hold the title of dean. Congressman Conyers was born in Detroit and on May 16, 1929, the eldest of four sons of John and Lucille. He attended Detroit Public Schools and graduated from Northwestern High School. After graduating, he served in the National Guard and then joined the U.S. Army. He was inspired by his friend, Dr. Martin Luther King, to run for office and was elected to the House of Representatives in 1964. He first, his first hire was civil rights hero, Rosa Parks. As a human rights and civil rights champion, Mr. Conyers opposed the death penalty and fought the police brutality, and he also led Colette led a co-sponsor for the voting rights of 1965. Mr. Conyers also assisted in helping in passing the Help America Vote Act, the Violence Against Women, the Motor Vehicle Bill, the Jazz Preservation Act, and the Martin Luther King Holiday Act.
I am joined today by a number of my colleagues who will be joining me to give remarks. And it's with honor that I now bring forth my colleague, Donald Payne, whose father served with John Conyers. But I rise to honor the former Congressman John James Conyers after his passing on October 27th. 2019. I'd like to start by offering my thoughts and prayers to his wife, Monica, and his sons, John and Carl, during this time of loss. Mr. Conyers spent 53 years as a congressman from Michigan, mostly from districts in and around the Detroit area. Mr. Conyers was the third longest serving congressman and the longest serving African-American congressman in United States history. He helped found the Congressional Black Caucus with some of our nation's most prominent civil rights leaders and colleagues, such as Shirley Chisholm, William and William Lacey Clay Sr., the father of my esteemed colleague, William Lacey Clay Jr., from Missouri's first district. During his life, he had several accomplishments in, uh, in and out of Congress. He joined voter registration drives in Selma, Alabama in 1963, a year before the land right, landmark 1964 Civil Rights Act even became law. As a congressman, he led the drive to help make Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday and succeeded through perseverance and continued uh, efforts to make that happen under surmountable odds. He helped calm revolters in his district during Detroit's racial strife of 1967. He was a vocal opponent of apartheid in South Africa, a political system of legal racial discrimination that he just, and as many of us in this great nation, would not tolerate. And he fought for restrictions on gun ownership to prevent violence because he knew what it meant in so many of our communities to have these lax laws. At one point, Mr. Conyers was called the leading black voice in Congress. He was also known as one of the best dressers on Capitol Hill and a lover of jazz. He even got to Congress he even got Congress to declare jazz a national American treasure in 1987. He was a dedicated public servant, honored Korean War veteran, champion of racial equality, and a strong figure in this house on behalf for half a century. His legacy would be remembered long after his passing. The work that he has done on this floor and in these halls has been second to none. He cared about this nation. He cared about his colleagues, and he cared about his constituents in his district. We will miss him dearly. Mr. Conyers was one of a kind, and we are saddened by his loss. So we are here to honor him in the manner in which he should be as an esteemed member, former member of this house. 
it is significant to note that Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman Tlaib, actually represents the seat that John Conyers retired from. And I'm proud to introduce my colleague, Rashida Tlaib. Thank you so much, and thank you, Mr. Speaker. I rise today with a heavy heart in joining my beloved colleague, who also represents the city of Detroit, in paying tribute to our wonderful late Congress member, John Conyers, the longest-serving African-American in the United States Congress, a true civil rights icon and visionary, and the man who will forever be our congressman. The Honorable John Conyers, Jr.'s mission to make sweeping changes in civil rights by fighting on behalf of the people started well before he ever stepped into the United States House floor. One of the things that he said is we've got a, at, at the passing of, of Rosa Parks, his dear friend, has said that we've got a tremendous legacy to fulfill. You can't maintain a democracy and an empire simultaneously. And he said, Rosa, you taught me that. But when he first was sworn into the Congress in 1965 during a time of great social unrest in our country's history, he embarked on what we would become a 50-year tenure of service to our people that would result in that mission being accomplished and then some. Indeed, his more than 50 years of service brought forth the vision of reparations for African Americans, the centering of voting rights, a continued push for universal health care, the creation of the Congressional Black Caucus, and the inspiration of not just those in Detroit. He directly impacted many, many countless Americans across the country. When I first was elected to succeed Congressman Conyers, I knew that I had a tremendous legacy to carry. It's that tremendous legacy that propels my work on behalf of Michigan's 13th Congressional District that I fight for every single day. I remember when I f was in his presence of greatness. He never ex exhibited anything less than grace and kindness. He always paused and took time to talk to the residents. He taught me that. Sadly, the last time I spoke to him was at his 90th birthday celebration in Detroit. He was joyful, and yes, he still had the presence of greatness, as Congresswoman uh, Brenda Lawrence saw for herself as well. Detroit and our district will sorely miss him. May he rest in peace as we continue to fight for what he fought for so long and unwavering, with unwavering strength for jobs, justice, and peace. I pray that his wife, Monica Conyers, and the family find strength during this difficult time. He was many things. He was a UAW labor member. He was a military veteran. He was a fighter for voters' rights, for health care, for reparations, for racial justice. He was a lover and promoter of jazz. But most of all, I stand here today as a member of Congress representing Michigan's 14th district. He was Detroit. He was Motown. He was a person whose thumbprint will remain throughout history as a political voice, a leader, and a beloved man in a history of our city and of Metro Detroit. I want to say to the family, we send all the love and respect and to say in closing, John Conyers, rest in power.
This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And the last and first voice you heard in our excerpts from the tribute to Representative John Conyers was Representative Brenda Lawrence, Democrat of Michigan, also of Detroit. Well, while American protests may not be on the scale of what is happening in Iraq or Chile or Honduras or Haiti, but Americans are rallying for the same issues of human needs. So was the case on October 25th when a coalition of labor, health, and faith communities and activists rallied in front of the Wilson Building in Northwest D.C. for access to a full-service hospital and full funding for United Medical Center in Northeast D.C., which serves Wards 7 and 8 of the district. We just wanted to welcome you all and say thank you for coming out to join us to support saving funding for United Medical Center and supporting quality health care and quality jobs in Southeast Washington, D.C. First up this morning, I want to invite uh, Ambrose Lane Jr., the director of the D.C. Health Alliance Network, I thought I had it right, okay, to, to lay out what we've been dealing with over this past year and what's been going on in this fight to protect health care for D.C. residents in Southeast D.C. Ambrose. Thank you, Dua. As, as Dua mentioned, my name is Ambrose Lane Jr. I'm the chair of the Health Alliance Network, which is DC's largest community-based health advocacy group, here serving wards five, seven, eight, and parts of ward four. I'm here on behalf of the Health Alliance Network, but I am joined in coalition and in solidarity with the DC Health Justice Coalition, which is a broad coalition of organizations, unions, hospital workers, residents, to fight for better health care in the District of Columbia. It is a shame that in a city that has democratic leadership, that we have to fight for adequate health care. Let me say that again. In a city that has democratic leadership, we have to fight for health care. That is shameful. I am here because we are in a health care crisis. This city has a health care crisis. Now, there may not be a crisis in Ward 3. There may not be a crisis in Ward 2. But there is a crisis for over half of the city's African-American population in Ward 7 and 8. And if you count Ward 5, if you count Ward 5, that is two-thirds of the African-American population in this city. There is a health care crisis from contaminated water at St. E's to the opioid crisis where they have found 13 different strains of fentanyl in the drug market. From meningitis found in elementary schools. From the overcrowded hospitals as a result of the closing of Providence Hospital. To the highest rates of chronic disease on this side of the Western Hemisphere where maternal health does not exist for women, poor women in wards five, seven, and eight, because they close obstetrics, they close the NICU unit. We are in a health crisis, and the people in this building don't want people to know that there's a health crisis, is that right? The people in this building do not want people to know that there's a health crisis that covers half of the African American population in this city, and we have to do something about it. The negotiations for the new hospital are shrouded in mysticism, mystery, and mayhem. 
There is no transparency. There is no community input. And that is why we need to have full funding for United Medical Center. That is why we need to have protections for unionized workers. That is why we need to have the adequate services to serve D.C. residents in Wards 5, 7, and 8 and in Prince George's County. It was Martin Luther King who said that the greatest inequality is injustice in health care. It is both shocking and inhuman. And to have to beg for services for black people and poor people is inhuman. So let me make it clear why we are here. We are here to fight for better health care. We are here to fight for adequate health care. We are here to fight on behalf of workers. We are here to fight on behalf of patients and residents. That is why we are here. Full funding for United Medical Center. Bring back the NICU unit. Bring back the obstetrics department. Allow poor women and, and even middle class women to have their babies where they live. We need to have the services like oncology. They just ripped oncology away from United Medical Center. We need to have full funding for United Medical Center at least until the new hospital is born. And when that new hospital is born, when that new hospital opens, it better have the services and protection for union workers. It better have the services that communities need or else we will not support it. Let me lay it down right now. If it is not, if it does not have the adequate services, if it does not have protection for union workers, if it does not have a robust community benefits agreement, we will not support the new hospital. It must have all those things because that's justice in healthcare. That is justice where we live. I'm a Ward 7 resident. I want justice where I live. I want justice for our children. I want justice for our residents. Thank you. I'm just getting fired up. I'm just getting fired up, but I gotta go down. All right, all right. Let's give it up for Ambrose Lane Jr., everybody. I think you made the point pretty clear. We want justice, we want health care, and we are going to get it today. All right. Next up, my brother in this fight from the beginning, the executive director of the DC Nurses Association, Ed Smith, is gonna be joining us to give us a few words about why we are still continuing this fight. Let's give it up for Ed Smith. Thank you, Duar. A little tough to follow, uh, Ambrose. Ambrose, thank you very much. So I'm Ed Smith, Executive Director of DC Nurses. We've got some nurses out in the house right now. All right. So, uh, Ambrose, where are you? You stole my quote. <laughs> Listen, I've been sick as a dog for the last day and a half. And uh, I'm here today. And if something happened to me right now, there's a hospital over that way. There's three hospitals over that way. Georgetown, GW, Sibley. I go up the street here, go to see my brothers and sisters in the union movement at Howard, they take care of me. I could go up to Washington Hospital Center where they're represented by the great NNU uh, and our nurses there. And I could get there 15 minutes maybe, 20 minutes, right? I'm lucky. I get equity in my health care. My wife's been ill and we have a five minute drive to get her PT over at National Rehab. You know how much that makes me feel good, that I can take her there 
and not worry and I can continue to represent nurses in the district and advocate for patients, which we have people here from residents of Congress Heights and Senior Wellness Center, Washington Senior Wellness Center. That makes me feel good. But isn't that my right as a human to get care? Isn't that my right? And why is it not their right? People who live in Ward 7 and 8. Why is it not their right? We have district council members and the mayor who as early as 2010 have said, we do not want to be in the healthcare business. That alone is shocking and shameful. That would be like saying, you know what, we don't want to have a police force anymore. We don't want to have police service the community. We don't want to have trash collection. We don't want to have trash collection because that's a little expensive and it's wasteful. It's just outright wrong to say you do not want to have, you don't want to be in the business of running a hospital. Well, let's say even with that philosophy, let's leave them alone with that philosophy. If you're running a hospital, which they've been doing for nine years, don't run it into the ground and then turn around and walk away and say, we're not going to give you these extra million dollars you need to give health care. Give it up for Ed Smith, everybody. All right, continue with this conversation. Ed mentioned it, but we are going to be heading to a hearing after this rally, after this press conference. We're going to be discussing what we want with the council members in the oversight hearing for health. Coming up in just a couple of hours, a little less than two hours from now at 11 a.m. But I want to continue this conversation up next from the D.C. Nurse Association United Medical Center Unit President, Roberta Lemoy.
Waiting times in the ED have gone from 18, almost are, are at 18 plus hours to sometimes three days. People are not having access to health care. We are now having to do what's called hospital hopping, which is going from hospital to hospital to hospital to see if you can get in to be seen within maybe six hours or go to Maryland or Virginia. It's totally unacceptable. We need to do something about this. And the other last thing I'm going to say is that we need to think about safety. If there's a catastrophic, catastrophic event in this, in, this, in this city, how are we going to handle it when all of our hospitals are already busting at the seams? All right. That's right. Okay, so we need to start asking some really important questions before the balloon goes up and we look around and we don't have nowhere to go. Thank you so much, and thank you for supporting us. All right, let's give it up for Roberta Lenoir. We want to stick with the theme of what's going on inside of the hospital at United Medical Center. Up next, my sister from 1199. She is our chief, our champion. She has been in the hospital for over 40 years. Miss Alma Ames Davis from 1199 SCIU. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. First, I want to, I want to give honor and glory to the Lord for letting, allowing us to be here today. I have been at United Medical Center since 1973, and I have gone through so many different changes. United Medical Center, which was KFRS at first, was a home away from home. We would do anything to keep, give quality and excellent care to our patients in Ward 7 and 8. We need this hospital desperately. Ward 7 and 8 needs this hospital desperately. We have some of the specialty areas that's needed, but slowly but surely, they're trying to take them away. Oncology, yes, they took away, and we desperately need that. I need it. I'm a survivor of four years. Also, we have young people who are suffering Ward 8, HIV. If you take away the hospital and you take away the specialty areas that's needed, they will die because they will not come up to Northwest to Whitman Walker. We have surgery. We have orthopedics. There's podiatry. Everything that's needed except for OBGYN. We just had a baby that was delivered in the emergency room. That is not fair to that person because that area is not suited for a mother to give delivery to her baby. We need OBGYN and we're going to work and fight hard to get it back. We're going to work and fight hard to keep United Medical Center open. That's our home. All the people we work with, all the people we care and take for, that's our family away from our original family. Thank you for letting me speak to you. God bless you all. Very hard, fellas. Give it up for all my Ames Davis, everybody. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. 
you can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. The music we played this hour included Baby Shark by Pink Fong and Umi Says by Yasin Bey, formerly known as Most Death. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.